I'm Duncan Strauss. Really delighted to be bringing you another edition of Talking Animals, in which we'll speak about talking animals from a different angle. With Dean Steffen, who is a noted animation writer for more than two decades, has put the words in the mouths of all kinds of animals. This should be fun and novel discussion. First, though, as always, we're kicking off the show with an animal tune. This is new music from Paul Weller with Dragonfly here on Talking Animals. That's new music 
from Paul Weller, the Dragonfly, an animal song of sorts to ease us in today's edition of Talking Animals. My name is Duncan Strauss, here with our program that is devoted to all subjects in the animal kingdom. In just a few minutes, we'll be hearing from today's guest, Dean Steffen, for uh, a better part of 25 years, has enjoyed an illustrious career as an animation writer, writing episodes of shows ranging from Cat Dog to Dragon Tales to the Penguins of Madagascar to new programs like Pom Pom and Friends. Been a long been an array of uh, animals in the Stefan household, and we'll see if he draws inspiration from those in-house critters and otherwise discuss how Dean conceives stories and scripts from those uh, in-house critters and otherwise discuss how Dean uh, conceives those things, puts words in animals' mouths, and more when we hear from Dean Stefan in a few moments. We're talking animals. And as uh, usual, we'll uh, have other things like the uh, step into the comedy corner. Going to do a vintage piece from Bill Cosby, actually. And um, we'll play Name That Animal Tune by email today. Since we're doing this all by Memorex, the winner will receive a basic exam and shot package for cat or dog from the Animal Coalition of Tampa. Also later, we'll hear some uh, more animal songs, including a brand new tune, uh, time permitting, from a wonderful local band, The Human Condition, that tells a sort of a dark historical animal tale, but in a sprightly, engaging tune. Right now, though, it's time for an animal news and announcements segment, a look at items of interest in animal news, as well as announcements of local events on the horizon. Produced, as always, by the Talking Animals award-winning Rip and Read News Department. Let's start off with beluga, beluga whale news. The world's largest aquarium is expecting the pitter-patter of giant fins. The Georgia Aquarium has a rare beluga whale pregnancy, the first mammal to conceive at the downtown Atlanta attraction since it opened in 2005. And the mother, Maris, conceived naturally, which is rare for belugas in captivity. Maris is being monitored around the clock. She gets closer to the end of her 14-month pregnancy. She's expected to give birth by June a cap that could be up to 50 pounds. Just six North American facilities house belugas and few are born each year. Newborn calves often don't survive with first-time mothers, but aquarium officials are working to train Maris on how to nurse and care for the baby. Dateline Sydney from the Reuters. Counting emperor penguins in their icy Antarctic habitat was not easy until researchers used new technology to map the, mer- the birds from space. And they received a pleasant penguin surprise for their efforts using satellite mapping with resolution high enough to distinguish ice shadows from penguin poo. An international team has carried out what they say is an unprecedented penguin census from the heavens over the past three years. The good news is that the team found the Antarctic emperor penguin population numbered about 595,000, nearly double previous estimates. But the bad news was that some colonies have disappeared altogether due to changing weather patterns in the long-term future of the birds is far from assured. Quote, yes, this is the first comprehensive census of a species taken from space. Absolutely, said Barbara Wieneke, a seabird ecologist with the Australian Antarctic Division who spoke with Reuters by phone from the Aurora Australis research vessel. Previous counts have been inaccurate due to rough terrain that made some colonies inaccessible and frigid temperatures that can plummet to minus 50 degrees Celsius, minus 58 Fahrenheit. Cold either way. Either way is slicing. And uh, this is sort of a politician 
animal story that, well, let's just get into it. It's from uh, Montpelier, Vermont, a late-night encounter with four bears trying to snack from backyard bird feeders gave Vermont's governor a lesson in what not to do in bear country. One of the bears chased Peter Shumlin and nearly caught the governor while he was trying to shoo the animals away, he said Friday. I had a close encounter with a bear, four bears to be exact, Shumlin said. He uh, had just gone to bed inside his rented home on the edge of Montpelier late Wednesday when the bears woke him up. He looked out the window and saw the bears in a tree about five feet from uh, the house trying to get uh, food from his four bird feeders. I opened up the window and yelled at them to get away from the bird feeders. They kind of trot off. I go around to the kitchen and turn the, bird, the lights on and look from the other side, and they're back in the bird feeders. So I figured I've got to get the bird feeders out of there. They're going to make this a habit. So he then ran out and first grabbed two of the feeders. As he grabbed the other two and made his escape, one of the bigger bears was interested in me. It was probably six feet from me before I slammed the door and it ran the other way, Shumlin said. Shumlin said he didn't stop and get dressed, though he didn't reveal exactly how little he was wearing. And uh, one other quick one. If we have time, we'll come back to some later, but uh, this is Daily in Washington. We have some real charmers uh, on this uh, thing of uh, new adopted animals. And uh, two uh, that uh, happened here at the Washington Humane Society are uh, notable, including a beautiful dog named Pebbles, who is deaf, and who comes with her very own guide dog named Josie. So, animals working uh, working together, that's what we like here on Talking All right, so uh, let's stop into the, uh, step into the Talking Animals Comedy Corner. Which involves animal or comedy. Bill Cosby has been in the news again recently, weighing in on the Trayvon Martin case and other issues. And, uh, of course, Bill Cosby has some wonderful vintage, vintage uh, animal pieces. So let's hear one uh, now. This is the story of the chicken from Bill Cosby on today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animal. I was uh, thinking the other day, which is really groovy. You have to do that every once in a while. You have to think. You know, just lay up in your bed and just... Think, but you don't have anything to do. You just think, and uh, I started thinking about animals because to me they're really groovy because they don't talk or nothing. So I try to get into their brains to see what they're thinking, and I started thinking about the first chicken. Did you ever think about the first chicken? Not, not who came first, the chicken or the egg, because I really don't care. Because <laughs> if there was an egg and the chicken came from it. Who did the chicken have to learn from? Because when you think about chickens, they don't hang out with other birds. They hang out with the horse. You know, they walk around. How you doing, horse? How's everything? And they walk around with the cow. Hey, cow, what's happening? How you doing? You know. And they ain't hanging out with the ducks or the robins or nobody like that. Robin Redbreast. Names you learn in elementary school. Robin Redbreast. They're just hanging out with themselves. So I figure the first chicken had to be confused. You know what I mean? Because now, when they were first here, everybody got irked or pregnant. They were all swollen with child. So the chicken is hanging out with the horse and the cow, and they're all irked. And they're just proud, can't wait. The chicken said, oh, yeah, yeah, it's going to really be nice, don't you think? All of a sudden, the horse said, and there it was, a colt, you dig? And the colt is standing up, skinny legged and everything. And it, <laughs> you dig? 
And the chicken was really happy. They said, oh, isn't that cute? It looks just like you. That is it. Oh, it's so, so happy for you. And the cow said, oh. and there's a calf. And the calf chicken said, oh, man, it looks just like you got a little bit of the father there. Yes, black and white spots. And oh, it's just, oh, mine is coming now. And they all looked and... The chicken had to be confused. <laughs> Look at it, egg. And there was no name for it then. She just looked at it. Oh, my. And the rooster probably was worse than the old girl. What were you drinking last night? <laughs> so I figure out of embarrassment, she sat on it. And tried to hide it, you dig? And felt it cracking. But you gotta do some thinking, because the chicken had to be confused. The duck probably came over and explained it to her, because ducks are hip. All right, that was Bill Cosby. With the story of the chicken taken from his album, The Best of Bill Cosby, on Duncan Strauss, this is Talking Animals, our website is Talking Animals. Net. It's nearly time to hear from today's guest, Dean Steffen. As I mentioned earlier, for the better part of 25 years, Dean has enjoyed a successful career as an animation writer, ending episodes of shows ranging from Cat Dog, Dragon Tales, The Penguins of Madagascar, and new uh, new shows as well that we'll discuss. In those uh, shows and others, Dean has uh, devising uh, how various animals will behave, what they'll do. Of course, uh, what they'll say, deciding uh, what words these talking animals will utter. So this is a show I've wanted to do for some time, and uh, we like to have some fun on uh, talking animals, at least occasionally. So in a conversation recorded last week, repeatedly I might add, this is Dean Steffen on Talking Animals. Just leave it there. We're out of time. Yes, exactly. All right, so let's uh, welcome to Talking Animals, Dean Stefan. Thanks, Dean, for uh, joining us today on Talking Animals. Sure, Duncan. It's nice to talk to you. It's been a while. It has been, and, and uh, it feels, uh, I don't know, vaguely, oddly familiar. But um, so, I, I just as a full disclosure thing, I should uh, probably uh, mention that we uh, know each other. We met each other many, many years ago at a uh, sitcom writing class at UCLA and uh, later collaborated on a screenplay. And um, and we took many baths together. I think we're right. Well, that's that's probably more than I would have mentioned. But uh, <laughs> but that you know sometimes when you're writing a, a movie, sometimes that's what it takes to uh, to get to those next scenes. Whatever but, it takes. Yeah. Right. So anyway, so let's um, with all that uh, sort of as preamble, let's uh, let's see about how you sort of first got into writing animation and and what what drew you to the animation world. Um. Well. Around the time I met you, where we met in a class at UCLA, I had um, gotten into, by way of music, um, I had met a woman who um, got me into TV writing on Divorce Court, uh, which is... um, And what was Divorce Court about? Divorce Court was a a court show about divorces. And that's the best title they could come up with? (laughs) The funny thing on divorce court is like we'd make up all these uh, sort of uh, problems between couples, you know, like uh, irreconcilable differences and, you know, uh, mental uh, abuse and stuff. And I said, this sounds like a typical day at my house. You know, the things that they were citing as being the most horrible things between couples, I thought was a typical day at home. But 
be that as it may, it was a total fiction show, and I started getting notes from the network saying, you know, you're you might be better suited for comedy because I was putting a lot of funnier than. Uh, more than campy, which they liked. I was putting funny stuff. I took a class at UCLA in sitcom writing. I met you, and along with you, I also met a guy, um, Mark Young, who was a, a story editor at Hanna-Barbera at the time. They were doing some shows, including the Smurfs. He gave me a shot on um, a couple shows, Fantastic Max, I think was the first show I wrote, and then some Smurfs. And um, I don't know. I'd never really seen an animation script before. I didn't really know what it was about. I'd watched cartoons as a kid, and I was amazed when I saw it, the incredible amount of detail um, that went into it, and I was a little intimidated, to be honest, instead of um, saying a sitcom where you'll see it sort of looks like a play. It's a bunch of dialogue and very little stage direction, and in fact, it's considered amateurish in screenplays or sitcoms to direct on the page to call out shots and sound effects and stuff. That's a requirement in animation writing. So it's a very technical-looking document. You write all the sound effects. You describe everyone who walks into a room, what the room looks like, how many you know, vases are on the table. Um, you're basically describing for a storyboard artist um, basically everything that's seen on the screen and for the voice director, everything that's heard on the screen as as well as the sound effects, which is a whole other element. And sometimes you even call out music cues. So wow. it's um, very, very page-intensive as opposed to, say, a sitcom that... Um, might be 30 pages double space. Uh, uh, an animation script might be 40 pages single space for the same amount of time. So it's very, it's very much like a shooting script, I guess, for a, a movie. Except um, you would not, as a writer, direct on the page for a movie, which you kind of do in animation. Yeah, it so, sounds like the the in this in the animation world, the the, the writer is really the uh, auteur, if I may use that term, and um, and sort of really. Basically laying out exactly not only what people are going to say, but precisely what they're going to do and when and what sort of sound effects would be accompanying those actions or that scene. And uh, Yes, you're, you're the, I would say you're the author in, in some sense, but you're also very beholding to the artist in that yeah. you have to service them and not give them something ridiculously difficult. Or, oh, okay. Uh, so, so um, you know, the classics are... Uh, uh, thing that, you know, the storyboard guard, uh, artist would say, I don't know if this is, um, actually happened, but, you know, a writer wrote, you know, a hundred Indians come charging over the hill and the artist charges into the, the writer's office, says, if you can describe every Indian and what they're wearing and what they look like, I'll draw them. But you just don't willy nilly write a crowd runs into a room. You say mm. three dogs. One is, you know, uh, knee high to a grasshopper one is four feet tall and one is you know uh, somewhere between the two and one is white in color and fluffy and stuff like that and you get you sort of get that specific so because it's so. really in, it's, as you're as you're explaining this so it's really instructions to the artist yeah. um and and they have to you know be able to follow those directions and execute them not not the 100 indians come over the hill thing which is right. not helpful at all yeah or hopefully you know make it better but you at least need to give them something to draw that you can picture that a human being can draw. And if they could make it better or add 12 more dogs, 
you know, according to the budget and the time constraints, that's great. But, you know, if someone knew absolutely nothing about animation and it was their first storyboard, that's the way I always look at it. You should give them something that's drawable, that makes sense, and that, um, and that uh, you know, you can picture in your own mind. So I, I look at an animation script as I'm sort of picturing the panels of a comic book almost, and I'm describing what you'll see in each of those panels because a storyboard that leads to the cartoon is really the blueprint for the animated cartoon. So it's a series of panels in a way. Oh, okay. And, and so, so then, um, it sounds like kind of once you, you know, it sounds like you were first a little uh, uneasy or maybe even intimidated when you saw your first, you know, that first, uh, animation script. Um, but it sounds like once you sort of got into it, it, it was kind of solving a puzzle and, and, and actually like that you really clicked with, with that form of writing. Yeah, I think I really clicked, and I got to do a really fun script for the very first one I did. And I think the second one I did sort of a, a, a satire of um, various genres of um, movie making, you know, Bugsley Berkeley, Berkeley musical and a Hitchcock film and a Spielberg film. You know, it gave me the opportunity, and I realized, you know, a lot of the stuff that I'd loved growing up, you know, whether it's Mel Brooks movies or Woody Allen or Marx Brothers or even Action Adventure or old cartoons and comic books, I could bring all those things together into one sort of skill set. And I use the term loosely because uh, <laughs> I, I, like, I like the term skill set. Yeah, <laughs> I have no, I have no actual. But, but you skill. do have a set. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, it just it just spoke to my condition. I mean, it was sort of like uh, music was not working out for me. This was something that paid fairly decently that I could basically mostly stay at home and make up stories and, you know, not not be institutionalized for that, but actually get paid. And I was just uh, about to get married. And it just seemed like um, in my 30s I found something that would be as close to the musician lifestyle of being totally irresponsible and uh, having no real boss and being creative um, that really, uh, you know, and I, I found that I did have this visual sense that I didn't really, I wasn't that aware of until I started doing it. And I thought, oh, yeah, I can picture that gag and stuff. And it's it's very liberating. It was just a really fun thing to fall into right after Hanna-Barbera. A couple of years later, I guess I got a staff job at Disney, and they were just doing something called the Disney Afternoon, early 90s, uh, late 80s, which was uh, Darkwing Duck and Tailspin and Goof Troop and DuckTales, uh, and basically using a lot of characters from the old Disney movies and also the icons for the first time, Goofy and Donald and stuff for TV, which they had been reticent to do because they're such... Uh, iconic figures to Disney. They didn't want to harm the franchise, I guess, but then they saw that they were handing it over to people who were really, you know, respectful and really loved these characters and wanted to do something with it. So it was it was really fun. I think Disney was really my apprenticeship, spending five years there, one series after another. Um, and Disney Afternoon was really the only game in town at that point for daytime cartoons that so, were... So this was, it sounds like then this was pre... Pre-Nickelodeon, for example, and some of the others that... Uh... Yeah, I think Nick was maybe just starting out. They had three cartoons, Doug, uh, Rugrats, and uh, Ren and Stimpy. But it was... Uh, cable was barely... You know, not that yeah. many people had cable. 
So Disney really sort of ruled the roost for daytime, you know, cartoons. There wasn't Cartoon Network or two zillion other channels or anybody else. So they were doing, uh, you know, so they sort of ran it. And so five years, we just had, you know, 65-episode half-hour series one after another, and I thought this is actually like a real job. I can, you know, be a staff writer, and little did I realize that that was an anomaly, and uh, we sort of haven't seen that since, you know, that kind of job security or, you know, being ruled from one series into another kind of thing, which was a real luxury. But I, uh, you know, I really enjoyed my time at Disney. You know, they, they you know, they in case they're really, In case they're hiring. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to keep one eye on the policy. Sure, of course. Of course. I, love, I love my Disney overlords. They were, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, a lot of the bad things people are saying is, is not, uh, Absolutely not, not, not how you true. felt. Absolutely yeah. They're a loving, fun group. Sure. Now, so it sounds like, Dean, as you're recounting this, that, you know, early on it was like, wow, what, what, what is this thing, all this incredibly uh, detailed uh, stuff that needs to be provided by the writer? And, and in some ways, that, that might have initially seemed like, wow, this is almost kind of anal retent of what's, what's required to make a successful animation script. And yet, it sounds like after you kind of got the hang of it, sort of the reverse was true, that you had this great sense of freedom, that you could draw on all those, uh, movie sources and other things that you cared about. And, and that whether you're at Disney or elsewhere, that then kind of really within, depending on what the show sensibility was, anything was fair game. Uh, you know, as long as you sort of met the criteria of what needs to be on the page for that animator. Yeah, and I found it, I found it was very similar to music in in a lot of ways. You know, uh, besides the obvious things that you know, in a storytelling, there's rhythm, and you know, you 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 have a climax and a crescendo and ups and downs. There was also a sense of um, that every every show and every series and every studio had their own sort of tone and context, whether it's squash and stretch and wacky animation or dark sort of gothic, uh, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe or, you know, epic or uh, zany comedy or situational, more sitcom-ish, that, you know, uh, much like music, once you learn, you don't, if you're a jazz player, you know, you don't, you may be the best jazz player in the world, but if you're playing a rock gig, you don't bring those chops to it, you learn the context you're in, and once you understand what this specific uh, sandbox, I'm mixing metaphors, the sandbox you're in, you know, you can, you can be as free as you want within that context, but just because you can write good Homer Simpson dialogue, you don't give that dialogue to Goofy, you understand how Goofy talks, his rhythms, his his you know uh, point of view of the world and how he sees it so i mean much like i'm sure any tv writing or anything where you're um, writing for pre-existing characters or helping to develop them you develop a tone and then your individual talent hopefully will make it better or worse but you really i think i i learned that from music somewhat that you you learn the chord changes first and then within that you you're able to improvise, improvise. but you don't yeah. inflict your own sensibility on something without knowing what um what piece you're doing so that's sort of a high high-minded way of saying i was kind of good at adapting and learning various uh you know tones of the show and so and it's not something you know i didn't grow up wanting to be a screenwriter before divorce court i had never even seen really a script 
mm-hmm. ever. And before animation, before I started doing I'd never seen an animation script. So it wasn't like I was a struggling guy, whereas in music, when you first knew me, I you know, spent 10, 12 years trying to break in and be successful. I was deeply connected and passionate about it and everything, you know, it meant the world to me. I was very sort of um, business-like about script writing mm-hmm. and yeah. animation. It's sort of like, this is what I got to do. I'll do it. Yeah. Cartoons, if I could do it, I'll do it. You know, there was nothing, uh, it wasn't beneath me. It wasn't above me. It was just sort of, oh, I can do this. The next step. Yeah. It's a skill, you know. I I, it, I looked at it as a craft, you know, rather than as a passion. And um, I, th- I think that sort of helped me in a lot of ways. You know, it's sort of like um, I, I, I never got all that emotionally involved, which is good for TV because everything gets messed with. And sure. It's have, heartbreaking uh, if you uh, do yeah. allow yourself to get emotionally involved. So let me let folks know this is Talking Animals. If you just tuned in, we're speaking with veteran animation writer uh, Dean Steffen. Um, uh, we'll, we'll be uh, talking about um, some of the animation that dealt more specifically with animals over the years and, and Talking Animals, of course. So uh, this conversation was recorded uh, repeatedly <laughs> last Wednesday. <laughs> so um, so let's, uh, bef- so before we ease into the principal premise of, 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 of this interview, let's, uh, let's just sort of take a little inventory of, because um, over the years there's always been, it seems like, multiple animals in the Stefan uh, household. So let's, let's, uh, let's uh, meet the Beatles, as it were. Let's find out who's, uh, who's living there now, animal-wise. Well, animal-wise, now we've got um, a family of four. Um, I've got um, a Browser, who's a, uh, about an eight-year-old. He's a chocolate lab. And we've got Charlie, who's a beagle. He's about three years old. We've got Tony, who is a cat of indeterminate age. We sort of inherited him from my daughter's ex-dance teacher. He's a, sort of the tough guy of the neighborhood. And um, Sammy, who's the, sort of a hunter cat, he's a young guy, and he brings in all sorts of um, dead creatures that um, probably didn't want to be dead, but... Uh, Rare, yeah, rarely do they seek that out. Do <laughs> you know where you can hook me up with some sort of death? But um, there, he seems very proud. He puts it on my daughter's bed. Sure, you know, the trophy. Some carcass. Yeah, it's an offering. And look what I did. Yeah. You know what do you? What did you do? Yeah, you you're just kill? over there writing a script. <laughs> uh, what, how can you possibly compete? You can't compete with that. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've only killed. The dreams of children. He's actually, <laughs> he's actually brought in dead animals. Sure, come on. But, that's, uh, uh, he's and taken. In the past, um, well, you uh, you know, you remember, I'm sure, uh, Floyd, who was this big guy we had. Um, yeah, big, he was, big dog. Yeah, he was 135 pounds of half Newfoundland, half um, black lab, as far as we can tell. And yeah. we got him from a, a puppy. My wife was working on doing hair for a reality medical show and uh the one of the doctor's dogs had puppies who was um apparently down she lived down the street from matt Groening, the guy who created the simpsons and his his dog it was rumored was the father of uh of floyd who uh became our puppy and later big dog and uh you know i remember that she the woman asked me she lived in venice california asked me did i want to meet this guy matt Groening? whose uh, dog was the father, and, uh, you know, I knew him from Life in Hell, which is a comic strip he did. And The Simpsons was just starting to be bumpers on uh, Tracy Allman's show, and I didn't see any reason that I necessarily wanted to meet Matt Groening. I didn't. uh, 
I wasn't in animation, and even if I was, he probably wouldn't have seemed like a big deal to me. But uh, in retrospect, I wish I had, because you know, now I might, uh, you know, I might be, you know, I wouldn't be doing this radio show. I'd be doing much bigger. You do a much you bigger know? radio show with yeah. with uh, more sophisticated recording <laughs> techniques. We don't have but, to record uh, the show three times. <laughs> exactly. We won't talk about that. No, no, not on the air. We had but, some, we had some technical problems. I was we were we were. A, Sounding about an hour ago. Yeah, you should have heard the first version of this. This was really compelling then. Yeah. But um, <laughs> so anyway, well, so let's let's talk a little bit about um, with with your history of those uh, animals, Floyd and others, and, and the current ones. Um, you know, what's kind of involved with writing for animals? I mean, uh, you know, and 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 putting the words in their mouth so they are in fact talking animals. I mean, how much you draw on the animals that you've lived with, Floyd, and, and more recent animals, or yeah, just what you know about? Them. When, when you know when I became aware of your show being talking animals, I just thought it was funny that I thought, well, shoot, you know, I've been writing, I've actually been writing dialogue for animals for like twenty some years. And um, having said that, you know, the animals like in the Disney world, such as Goofy and Donald Duck, they don't necessarily behave like animals. They're treated almost like humans. Like uh, Goofy is basically a human he doesn't do dog stuff you know whereas the old cliche that you know what is goofy is a dog but what is pluto you know pluto is a pet of mickey who's a mouse so but you don't really think about it you think of them basically all as humans so they can have a pet dog um so in the disney world i think because due to designs and because they were kid friendly they tended to create it uh, these characters being animals, they just looked more real than designing humans, especially mm-hmm. in the early days of animation. And I think that's a big reason why so many of uh, cartoon characters are animals. They're just more fun to design, easier for expressions and stuff like that. Of the Disney shows I worked on, there's a show called Tailspin that was had Baloo, from, um, who was the bear from Jungle Book, as one sure. of the characters. And um, he he would occasionally do bear-like things, but just to the degree that he was sort of big and sometimes lazy, and he would scratch his butt against the wall kind of thing, as a bear might do. But otherwise, there wasn't a whole lot of bear kind of jokes or, you know, Behavior. behaviors. Yeah. Was space. He was a pilot, basically. You know, he, drove, he rode a plane for a courier service. But in um, later stuff I worked on, particularly uh, the show Cat Dog, that um, was a Nickelodeon show we did about 10 years ago, I think that was probably the most on-the-nose kind of cat and dog behavior. And Cat Dog was basically, if, if anybody hasn't seen the show, and I'm sure the those numbers are legion, uh, it's a cat <laughs> and a dog sharing a body so one end is a cat head and the other head is a dog head. They're two completely different personalities. It's basically the odd couple connected by a torso. So they're always sort of stuck together, but one has the dog attitudes of, you know, spontaneity and, you know, he'll see a ball or a bone and or a meat truck and he'll just get mesmerized and, you know, want to go chasing after it. The cat character is very finicky and a feat and, a little bit lazy and considers himself sort of um, sophisticated and stuff. So they have this built-in um, conflict and, you know, hopefully comedy. And, uh, you know, so we got a lot of stories, obviously, out of 
the nature of each of these animals and uh, you know basically and and how they differ it sounds how like how they differ yeah and you know i think we found probably more dog generated stories than cat because dogs are very proactive willful creatures so you could get a story out of dog um getting an idea that he wanted to be a rescue dog or pull mm-hmm. a a sled or uh right you know uh, those kind of things. Whereas the cat, his basic wants story to take a nap. Just, That's not really a compelling it's story. Not a great yeah. story. A lot of stories were basically he wanted to be um, severed from dog. So there was a lot of stories where they wanted to cover up dog or cover up cat because they were embarrassed about it. One, we, they went to a magician who actually sawed them in half. Um, so there was a lot of ba- stories about them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wanting to be separated, only to find out at the end that they loved each other. Sure. Much like the odd couple. And um, it was created by a guy named Peter Hannon, a very talented illustrator out of Chicago originally. And this was uh, Nickelodeon's going to be their first big stripped series, meaning it would be on the air every day. And it was going to be their icon, a cat and a dog. They had developed slippers and doorknobs, each with a cat and a dog thing. It was going to be their Mickey Mouse. And then um, somewhere... During the first season, I think um, SpongeBob came along, and that sort of wow. uh, yeah. sort of took off. That that became the the that big became, the uh, big show for Nickelodeon. But that show. that still keeps uh, somewhat in the vein of talking animals because it's a talking sponge. So oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. So so as for Cat Dog, uh, so really it sounds like you know that show, unlike some of the, what you described about Disney um, characters and in, in, in animation really largely hinged on, you know, what cats and dogs do and what, or what they don't do. So we have a little sample, just to kind of people hear some of, of, of your work and how that might play out. We have a, a, um, a little slice of the cat dog short, which folks uh, listening may have seen if they saw the Rugrats movie. So yeah, it's called Fetch and, um, it was co-written with Andy Ryan, Ryan gold, who was another staff writer over there. And, um, I think um, Billy West, I know Billy West plays uh, a radio announcer that you'll hear in there. Um, Tom Kenny, who's the voice of SpongeBob, was the voice of Dog. And Jim Cummings, who's the voice of um, Winnie the Pooh and Tigger and Darkwing Duck and just uh, too too numerous to name all the characters he's done, was um, Cat. And uh, I think in this clip uh, is Carlos Alice Rocky, who was – you might know as the Taco Bell Chihuahua, but he's uh, a stand-up and a talented voiceover artist. He plays Winslow, the rodent, who's kind of a real stinker and is uh, a real troublemaker with cat and dog. He's always trying to instigate problems. In this particular short um, story, basically uh, the simple story is Cat has won a radio contest or thinks he has and needs to get to a phone to call in to win his prize. Whereas Dog is um, hypnotized by this ball that Winslow the rat throws, and Dog is chasing the ball all over the city, get into wild hijinks and uh, Roger Rabbit kind of frenzy, all the while Cat keeps trying to get to a payphone or a cell phone to make his call into the radio station to claim a surprise. Sure. So basically, again, we have Dog uh, being Dog, you know, chasing the ball, and that uh, keeps Cat from calling in to uh, to win the uh, contest. Yes. So animals being animals. The, and, the cat, yeah. and talking animals, no less. So so shall we hear a little bit of that clip? And um, just to kind of, kind of – so this is uh, um, a clip co-written by uh, – I mean uh, a, a part of a – 
piece of the Rugrats. Um, okay, let's start over. This is part of getting to. When they showed the Rugrats movie in the theaters, right. this short was shown Appeared in front of in the theaters. And yeah. uh, so this is a, a, a cat dog short co-written by Dean Stefan, our guest today on Talking Animals. And uh, this here a little bit of the opening music, the jaunty uh, music, and then the, the beginning of the scene that he's just described. Go ahead. And a fur, a baby was born in a cause of little stir. No blue bucket, no three-eyed frog, just a feline, canine, little cat dog. Cat dog, cat dog. Alone in the world with a little cat dog. And coming up here on the big KAT, we'll be announcing the big winner of our big contest. Come on, dog, I gotta get to the radio. Be right there, cat. Come on, yeah. it's Oh, not now, dog. It's the big contest. I've got to listen to the radio for my name. Cat, I could have told you that. <laughs> so come on, throw the ball. <laughs> okay, but fetch quietly. Let's get a long one. Oh, look at it go. Hi, Winslow. Hiya, dog. This your ball? And now, the moment all you cool cats kids have been waiting for, the winner of our big WKAT. This prize is going to put us on easy street. Hey, Ken, you ever notice when you throw a ball, a dog's got to fetch? Yeah, that's whatever, yeah. Now, remember, in order to claim your big prize, you've got to call within the next five minutes. Five minutes, right. I mean, it's like the rule of nature or something. The dog just can't help himself. And our big WKAT lucky winner is... Congratulations, Ken. All right, so that's a abruptly ending clip from uh, Cat Dog Short. And so you've got there uh, a cat, a dog, and a rat, all as talking animals with the words provided from uh, by our guest uh, animation uh, writers, Dean Stefan. So, yeah. um, so I'm, Dean, ju- I'm just thinking of um, the. Uh, it's sort of like worlds within worlds. It's sort of like you record an animated script, much like a radio play. You know, they're all sitting around a microphone, and it's about a radio show, but it's an animated visual form. But we're, now we're listening to it on the radio, uh, but you can't see the pictures of the cartoon. I mean, it's all very uh, world within worlds. And, so. and some sort of bizarre house of mirrors. It's a house of mirrors, yeah. yeah. It's, it's very fun. And it really is fun. I think the most fun in animation for a writer is of to see you know your words come to life with the uh at the recording sessions with these incredibly talented people you know the Billy West and Jim Cummings and Tom Kinney's and Carlos and Maria Bamford and they were all on the, and I remember once in Cat Dog we had to recast um a part of Squirrel which was a a minor character that appeared every once in a while I think he was originally done by Eddie Dreesen who was the guy from the movie Grease I don't know if you remember him, but very specific. Yeah, but was he not up to the squirrel task? Well, you know, I think there were some issues with maybe the voice acting that they wanted to replace him. And literally everyone, you know, we had everyone from Buddy Hackett to Rip Taylor to, you know, even the existing cast. Everybody was trying out for this part. For some reason, they couldn't quite get it. 
But I just I got a real kick out of you know walking Buddy Hackett into the studio. Oh, and sure. Dean, you don't hear the name Dean that often, and, you know, <laughs> and then he tries out for the part, and he says, "Well, you can't say that uh, I didn't sound like a squirrel because you don't know what a squirrel really sounds like." And uh, wow, you know, very good, very good, Buddy Hackett, and who by the way also was a huge, huge animal guy. By but, the way, uh, yeah. and then I remember Tom Kinney, you know, again the voice of SpongeBob. He's pointing to this little cardboard sign that somebody had made squirrel auditions this way. And he, he would say, you know, anytime we start getting a little too big-headed, um, he points to the sign and he says, remember, this is what we're doing, what squirrel auditions. Trying out to be the squirrel, yeah. not even necessarily not getting even the squirrel. Getting yeah, and, exactly. Uh, you know, so they used a lot of people from the old SCTV, you know, Dave Thomas and, gosh, um, Andrew Martin. So it was just really fun for a fan such as myself to see these people. And, of course, you know, the voice actors, the guys who are, and women, the Frank Welkers and, you know, Jim Cummings and Tom King, they're just incredible, they're incredible Renaissance people, you know. They're all seem to be able to, they have music in their background, they have, you know, they can do every B-movie actor from 1940s that you've never heard of, you know, Billy West. When he does the Three Stooges, he does Larry. You know, it's just a, an amazing thing. And I, I remember yeah. was I think I once told you that I, I had written a song for him for an episode of Cat Dog, and I had my guitar there, and he, you know, I played him the song, and he immediately got it, and then he picked up my guitar and just played this incredible chord melody like Herb Ellis or, or you know one of these great. And it was just sort of like. This was just another of his talents kind of thing. He could yeah, do but, everything you could do better than you could plus everything else. You know? Yeah, it's really it's a really a world unto itself, and, and those, all those people often do do other things, uh, stand-up often or other things. But, but they are sort of just uniquely talented, and, and just the, 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 the access that they have. Well, should this cat sound this way, this way, this way, this way, and, and they can give you, you know, a thousand different cat, uh, you know, uh, inflections or whatever. Yeah, I uh, want three pigeons falling out of a window at the same time. One of them has a sneeze, and the other one is, you know, you know, he's got uh, Parkinson's, and the other one, uh, <laughs> you know, speaks in a lisp and do Done. them all at the same moment. You know, right. some of these people can do it. It's just quite, yeah, um, it's great, quite, quite, a, quite an amazing ability. As as you have being a radio guy, I mean. You've got that ability as well. Uh, I just have the one voice, and uh, barely that sometimes. But, uh, <laughs> but what a voice it is. <laughs> Let's hope on, on a good day, maybe. But, you know, there were guys like Jay Thomas who would come in, and they only did their voice, but only they did it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. they, they were, you know, that's sort of the opposite side of it, that some yeah. people just had that unique one voice that people like. And it worked. So yeah, people would worked. respond. Yeah. So, Dean, we're just sort of nearing the end of our time, but um, okay. let, let's just quickly, I have a couple other quick things. One, one of course, is um, what, are you, uh, what are you working on at the moment, especially if it's uh, animal-related, even if it's not? Okay. Um, well, for the, uh, I'll, I'll just mention the animal-related. Um, the last year or so, I've been working on a show um, called Octonauts that's on the Disney Channel. It's it's sort of a preschool show, but it's about a team that goes around in this little submarine. And even though they're animals, again, they don't act like animals, but they do interact with sea creatures that are actual animals, even though they might talk. But they include actual facts about these animals. And we have scientists, that marine biologists who are, you know, consult us on this. And so we'll at least have three real facts about an animal, for instance, a giant squid 
will be in this one episode, and they'll give the fact that they have a, over a thousand tentacles, and that they, you know, provide a, a sting of this sort, and they live oh, in wow. this particular region. And then they'll recap it at the end of the show. So, you know, for little kids, that they're not going to remember deeply scientific facts. But no, but they those, will be those tidbits and fascinated. Yeah. You know? Sort of like Jacques Cousteau for, uh, you know, the preschool. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, it's, it, it was originally a set of books um, and then on the BBC, and now they brought it over to be on the Disney Channel. So that that was really fun. It's, um, you know, I got to learn a little bit and do a little bit of research, not too much. But, sure, uh, for your just, tidbits. Yeah. For my, uh, you know, so um, there was that. I'm working on something called Rescue Bots for um, The Hub, which is a – a new channel, sort of like Nickelodeon channel, um, and uh, it's a Transformers for slightly younger set, a spinoff of oh, Transformers. Wow. A lot of fun, and um, again, great voice actors, great artists, great directors, great writers. Uh, you know, so it's um, it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, I feel I feel very fortunate to um, have fallen into this world and been doing it now for about 25 years. Haven't had to. Uh, you know, have a real job since. And, uh, Do you feel like you're getting the hang of it? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the hang of it. <laughs> I'm becoming an embarrassment to mostly everyone who knows me, but that's all right. You know, if you can't embarrass your kid, yeah, you're come on. So. Yeah, why, why do those things? So, so, <laughs> the, um, so we just, uh, sort of before we finish up, I just want to at least quickly acknowledge on a sort of related note in, in a sense, and that's, um, uh, Facebook for you, um, has sort of become another sort of outlet for different kinds of writing and, and really there's all kinds of people who are often now, um, responding to your posts and lines and, and jokes and other things, including, you know, comics, uh, Elaine Boozler, other comics uh, of a different generation, uh, music types. So maybe just if you could sort of quickly say what, what it represents for you. Is it just kind of keep the, you know, kind of the, you know, uh, the chops up, the juices flowing? Or is it just sort of fun diversion from when you're maybe taking a break from writing a script? or what? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's all those things. It keeps me at the computer, so I have no excuse not to do my other work, but I also have a good way to procrastinate. I was sort of uh, signed up. You know, when I was still at Disney by some friends there, and I didn't understand what it was about. You know, I thought you have your 30 or 40 friends that you keep in touch with. But then I sort of at some point it clicked that I didn't want it necessarily to be about personal stuff. I just wanted to use it sort of as, I guess, the way people sort of use Twitter now, just post funny comments about the news mm -hmm. or limericks and stuff about a subject and people join in so it sort of become that when i became friends with people like elaine boozler and she was very generous in asking her fan base to come and look at my page and stuff so i inherited a lot of her people and um you know everyone from comedy writers to actors to you know animation people to stand-ups to musicians and so you know i i just post um stuff about you know sort of stuff you'd see on the daily show or Leno type of jokes or uh please don't say they're Leno type of jokes that 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 means you tremendously i believe yeah well you know i don't i i i don't uh i'm I'm not specifically a comedy writer, but it sort of helped me nor is jay leno <laughs> i I will not speak uh I will not speak badly of anyone because, again, you, know, okay. you never know. I'm yeah. Just, uh, I know. I'll get a call from Jay Leno, believe me. And I know he yeah. listens to your show. So right, of course. Wanted, yeah. um, but, um, no, I mean, it's just a way to reach out in a very impersonal way. I I enjoy superficial 
relationships that are not – I have a problem with intimacy and stuff, so it fits <laughs> my condition very well. And, you know, you can just walk out on a conversation at any point and yeah. uh, continue it later. Uh, so for all those reasons, and it's also like the most bizarre cocktail party in the world that, you know, my – the first girl I ever dated when I was 15 is my friend. Then this woman I know who I used to date who now lives in Switzerland. And then my current wife, my only wife. And my, <laughs> current and wife, my yeah. My kid yeah. and, you know. Jay Leno will be calling mom, you about that. Jay Leno, yeah. Yeah. you know, stand up. So it's it's like all the people in the world you would never want to meet each other. All of a sudden, um, you know, I remember posting something about a concert I'd been to. And somebody said something about, I bet, you know, or, or, or something about sex. And somebody said, oh, I bet the girl you dated when you were 15 was, um, you know, you wouldn't want your daughter to. Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it just so happened that she was on that same thread, the girl I had dated when I was 15. So it's all, it's just a very strange collection of worlds colliding and stuff. Um, and uh, a lot of things that you probably could be. If I was younger, I would probably be worried about it coming back to bite me. But um, Too late. I think because I write for young kids so much, I, it really helps me to have an outlet for grown-up type stuff, whether sure. it's you know sex jokes or politics and stuff like that. And you know, I think some of the people who friended me who've been fans of maybe my work on some of the animated series might be a little appalled or shocked at what my sensibility really is because i well it's, it's two sides of dean stefan yeah, i think I'm a yeah. filthy horrible man but not really uh, but i know when i'm writing for little children that 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 i can't be filthy and horrible right so well that's good i'm out somewhere right well and that's that's probably accounted for the 25 year uh, career in animation knowing that exact uh, line to walk so so walk dean on. i should let folks know if they do want to check out you uh and, and join the cocktail party on your facebook pages dean stefan s-t-e-f-a-n yeah that'd and, be great and I dean, welcome everyone you know as long as um you know, you're not too scary or anything. Uh, right. And don't mention my name. Yeah, uh, probably won't be friended by by Dean. But yeah, anyways, but, Dean, thank yeah. you so much for um, for uh, all the time and and all the times really that we've talked. <laughs> and uh, and again, uh, it's been fun to sort of uh, find out kind of what what uh, how how talking animals on the animation screen happen and what they do and 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 some of the other things we've talked uh, talked about today. So thank it's, you very much for making it. It's been a real pleasure, Duncan, and it's always fun to talk to you. I've known you 25 years. Uh, not not in a row, but uh, no. certainly, yeah. <laughs> Randomly, yeah, <laughs> over 25 years. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Dean, well, thanks again, and uh, appreciate you making the time to join us uh, repeatedly on Talking Animals today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, I'm Duncan Strauss. Our thanks to uh, Dean Stephan once again, and as you might have Gathered from some of the references there, we uh, were bedeviled by all kinds of technical gremlins in recording that uh, interview with Dean, and it took three attempts to uh, get to the one you just heard. So my uh, big thanks to him for his uh, patience and extra time, and uh, to Maria Oliver for helping us get uh, get past those ghosts in the machine. I'm Duncan Strauss. You're listening to Talking Animals, where the show website is TalkingAnimals.net. It's time to proceed to name that animal tune. There'll be a prize, a basic exam, and shot package. For cat or dog, courtesy of the Animal Coalition of Tampa, to the first person who emails talkinganimals at wmnf.org and correctly identifies this animal tune. It's named that animal tune on Talking Animals.
All right, if you can name that animal tune, again, in this case, rather than call, email us at talkinganimals at wmnf.org. All right, we're going to hear an animal tune, sort of a dark tale to a uh, bright, sprightly, engaging tune. It's uh, from our friends Dean Johansson and the human condition. It's uh, sort of a historical tale about Thomas Edison and uh, all kinds of things about current and elephants. Well, you'll, you'll listen here. It's the Wizard of Enlo Park on Talking Animals. The bigger they are, the harder you'll fall. Giant eyes seem more than I. They'll remember it too. Watch what you do. Wolves on parade. What a mess you made. No one is safe. 